0: We're in chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 4 through 21. Jesus is going to tell two very familiar parables, the parable of the sower and the parable of the oil lamp. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 21. Follow along while I read the text. When a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given and whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him then his mother and brothers came to him and he could not approach or they could not approach him because of the crowd and it was told him by some who said your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you but he answered and said to them my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of god and do it let's pray together lord we are Always grateful for your word. We love coming together as a group, especially on Sunday mornings, Lord, celebrating your resurrection from the dead. And uh, Lord, gather together in your name where you're there to minister to us, to open up your word and speak it directly to our hearts. Our our, our minds are filled with anticipation, Lord, and expectation at what you want to do in our midst here. We thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted with us, as you said here in the text, the the mysteries of the kingdom, Lord. We want to understand them a little bit deeper, a little bit more than we have before, so that we understand your love for us and can reveal that love to a lost and dying world. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Polls and polling data are constantly in the news this election year. There are the familiar Gallup polls, there are Zogby polls, which I just like to say that. That's a cool name. Some people have cool names, you know, Zogby. Uh, There's even Barna polls directed more towards the issues of interest to Christians. Our text reads a little like poll results. It's as if the question were posed, how do people respond to the message of Jesus? And then the results fall statistically into one of the four categories that are listed. If a candidate for office saw these poll results, noting that some of the hearers were not responding favorably to the message, he'd be tempted to change his message in order to reach the broader audience. Jesus didn't do that. He couldn't do that because his message was and is the truth of God's Word. You and I are called upon to go forth giving this same message. Neither should we ever change it to reach a broader audience. The parable of the sower and the accompanying parable of the oil lamp are an encouragement to you as followers of Jesus to go on preaching and proclaiming the truth of God's word. Regardless the response you receive, you are to both broadcast seed and you are to brightly shine as you do so. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one. Go and sow with the seed of the word. And number two, go and glow with the light of the world. First of all, in verses 4 through 15, go and sow with the seed of the word. We read here that multitudes were now following Jesus wherever he went. There is nothing wrong with that. I only say that because sometimes we complain about large numbers in the church that we somehow have lost intimacy, or we get lost in the bigger group. Now, all of that is always relative to our previous experience. There are churches that some people consider small or medium-sized or large or the mega churches, and depending on what you're used to, uh, people come and say, oh, your church is so small. It doesn't seem like you're really doing much. And other people say, oh, your church is so big. I'm so lost in the church. I don't know what's going on. Nothing wrong with large numbers. You know, actually, the Lord said in the book of Acts, He said He's the one that adds to the church daily such as are being saved. It's His church. If He wants to have a large church, He'll do it. If He wants to have a smaller church with a different flavor to it, He'll do that as well. We're not really involved in growing the church, just in growing Christians. And so, I just want to throw that out. There's nothing wrong with large numbers of Christians, Still, a large group is not a success in and of itself. The opposite is also true. We have a tendency to think that the more people that are coming, the the more successful a group is. Spiritual success is measured by looking below the surface into each heart. Jesus wanted to put His message and the response of the multitudes into perspective for His disciples. It wouldn't be long after this that Jesus would be alone for the most part on the cross, His disciples mostly scattered, except for John, a few women around the feet of the cross. Recently, Peter having denied him openly three times within his hearing. Jesus wasn't really into numbers. He wasn't against numbers. He was just into truth. And knowing what was going to transpire and what would transpire throughout the centuries as we await for his second coming, the preaching of the gospel and meeting not always with the greatest success. He wanted to put all of this into perspective for his disciples both then and now. And so he says, we read in verse four, and when a great multitude had gathered and they'd come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Our English word parable comes from a combination of two Greek words that mean to cast alongside. A parable is defined as a story or a figure placed alongside a teaching to help you truly capture its spiritual meaning. A parable is much more than an illustration. A true parable gets you deeply involved and then compels you to make a personal decision about God's truth and how it relates to your life. A parable has been described as beginning as a picture that arrests your attention and arouses your interest. As you contemplate the picture, it becomes a mirror in which you suddenly see yourself. If you continue to look at it by faith, the mirror becomes a window through which you see God. Perhaps a farmer could be seen off in the distance, perfect for a parable. And so in verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it, but others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Using crude implements, the farmer would clear out a field as best he could. When he was done, all of the cleared ground would appear suitable for planting. He would walk up and down the field, sowing seed, hand broadcasting it out of a bag slung around his shoulder, and then he would come back and turn it under a few inches. Then the farmer would simply wait to cultivate and harvest the fruit from his labors. Even though the ground had been cleared and the whole field seemed suitable for planting, there were certain difficulties that the farmer could not completely eliminate. And one thing I want you to think about as we continue to meditate on this parable, uh, both today and in subsequent days, each of these conditions would be present in a single field as the farmer was working. We have a tendency to always want to car- compartmentalize Christianity and, and to put things in categories because that's the way we think. And we think in terms always of the, uh, the uh, soils as representing four different types of people. And I'm not saying they don't represent types of people, but at the same time, in a field, there would be all of these types of conditions. And, and it's possible that hearts cannot be described so Um, so easily. The human heart is a very deep thing that only God can plumb. And so each of these could be present in a single field. But nonetheless, let's look at some of these difficulties. For one thing, either the wind or the farmer's bad aim would allow some seeds to be sown on the pathways that bounded the field where the hovering birds would quickly snatch them up. I know when I use one of those little whirly bird broadcasters, you know, to put whatever it is you put into the grass to make it do whatever it is it's supposed to do. You can tell I'm really into gardening. I just wait until my neighbor across the street is doing it, and then I figure he must know what he's doing. His yard is green, and so I go out. And there's always stuff on the sidewalks. You know, because you can't get, I I try really hard, you know, but it it always broadcasts over where I want it to go. And so, uh, you know, in the first century here, either the wind, a little bit of wind would come up, seeds don't wave very much, and would blow it away, or, you know, the farmer would have bad aim. Maybe he was a cross-eyed farmer. And, you know, I mean, I wear glasses. I don't know that they had glasses in those days, did they? I don't think so. I can't see anything hardly without my glasses. I couldn't shave anymore if I didn't have glasses. Well, I could shave, but it'd be a horrible thing. And so people wonder, why'd they have such big beards in those days? Well, they couldn't see. <laughs> no mirrors of any sort, really, that were very good, and they couldn't really see. And so, man, you're not. And plus, they didn't have the Mach 3, either, you know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have shaved back then either. So anyway, so the farmer, he's, he's got some difficulties in sowing the seed. Now, for another thing, the soil itself could prove difficult. There might be a layer of rock somewhere beneath the surface too deep to be detected by his initial plowing. I mean, these guys didn't go through their fields with their air-conditioned CD play and tractors like we have today. No laser leveling. I mean, this was like an ox you know, pulling a plow or maybe just a hand plow. And, and so they could only go so deep, and there would be a layer of rock a little bit deeper than they could plow. If that was the case, that shallow soil just above the rock would be warmer than the rest of the field. The seeds sown there would quickly germinate, but their roots had nowhere to go, and the plants would be easily scorched by the sun. So if you were a farmer and you, you uh, scattered your seed, and then after a while you saw some seed coming up really quickly in an area, you'd be bummed because you know that that area was not going to be very fruitful. It was just a quick-grow kind of a thing. Weeds, of course, have always been a soil problem. Even though the farmer had cleared out the weeds, their hidden roots remained in certain areas of the field. Some of the seeds would be sown among those roots, and both the weeds and the plants would grow together, and the plants eventually being choked out by the weeds in certain areas of the field. Some seeds, and again, I would suggest something a little bit different. Perhaps the majority of the seeds would fall in good soil and produce the fruit the farmer anticipated. Again, I've heard it taught that, you know, if you look at the parable of the sower, only 25% of the seed sown bears any fruit. Well, I don't think Jesus is really giving percentages. He's giving a description of what happens when you sow seed. And in the case of a farmer, He's looking for more than a 25% yield. And if this is a field that he's familiar with, he knows where to plant and where not to plant. And and so he's going to get a pretty good yield. And so it may be that the majority of the seed is going to even take root and bring forth fruit. And so just something to consider. Now, this parable, talking in parables, took his disciples by surprise. In verse 9, his disciples asked him, saying, Lord, what does that parable mean? What it means is really a pretty huge topic. First, it marks a major change in God's dealing with the nation of Israel, and you see that in verse 10. And he said, "...to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that, quote, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand." This does not mean God wanted to hide the truth from most of the people in the world and only call a select few. If you understand the context, it means almost the opposite. He was about to hide the truth from his elect nation, the Jews, and begin to publish it instead in a broader way among the Gentile nations which is what has been happening for the past 2,000 years. You see, this is a quote from the sixth chapter of Isaiah. And you have to go back to Isaiah's day to understand what Jesus meant. In that day, in the sixth uh, chapter of Isaiah, the nation of Israel had closed their eyes and ears to God. They had hardened their hearts against God. As a result, God was looking for someone He could send to them who would speak His word but they would not receive his word. Even though it was spoken clearly and simply and with power, the Jews would reject it. And so he sent Isaiah to preach, but they didn't understand and respond to Isaiah. And it became a sign that they were headed for a time of judgment. And so God said, look, my people are hardened against me. They're not hearing me. And so I'm going to harden them even further. Isaiah, I'm going to send you. You're going to preach to them. They're not going to receive it, and it's going to be an overall sign that judgment is coming upon them. Jesus applied this verse to the first century Jews. They would indeed reject him as God's messenger. What would God do? Well, just as in Isaiah's day, he would temporarily judge the nation of Israel. Jesus' teaching by use of parables marked a change in his ministry that became a sign to the nation of Israel of their coming judgment. And that's exactly what history has recorded. For almost 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has been suffering. And so, God's not seeking really to, to hide the truth from most of the people in the world and just select a few people who Uh, are going to be saved. This is unique to Israel. He's saying, Israel's going to reject me, and so I have rejected them. And so instead of talking plainly, I'm going to speak in parables. And any really thinking Jew who hears him quote Isaiah and goes back to that history would know, oh, man, we had better repent because we're about to be judged. Whenever God quits speaking to us plainly in parables and stories and all then we're in trouble. But the gospel would go out beyond Israel to the greater Gentile world. Now, second, the parable means something to disciples. It's also in that sixth chapter that Isaiah hears the Lord and ask, or here, excuse me, hears the Lord ask, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And you remember Isaiah rushed forward and he raised his hand and he said, here am I, send me. Just as the Lord sent Isaiah, so now Jesus was sending his disciples. They and all disciples after them are sent out into the world with God's word. They and all disciples after them, including you and I, go as sowers who sow the seed of God's word. And so you are a sower of God's word. The field you sow in is the whole world. The people you encounter, their hearts are the particular soils into which you sow God's Word. And like the farmer's field, your field presents certain difficulties. Verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. There are times when the gospel is presented and it has no noticeable effect at all. You and I can't see it, but in the realm of the supernatural, the devil or his agents are somehow stealing the word away from these hard-hearted people." Maybe you've been in a church service, maybe here or somewhere else or at an evangelistic meeting, and it gets to that time of decision. Sometimes we call it an altar call, but it's a time of decision. And the the Christian minister will say something to the effect of, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And then he'll say, and all Christians are praying. You need to be praying because it's at that moment that a spiritual warfare is taking place. That's what Jesus said. He said, when the gospel is sown... There's a, a warfare in a supernatural realm. The devil wants to steal the seed of the word so that it can't penetrate hard hearts. And so rather than just sit there looking at the minister or look around to see who's gonna get saved, it, it's incumbent upon us to really enter into a time of prayer and spiritual warfare say, Lord, you promised that your word would not return void. And Lord, we don't know if it's going to be just a planting today or a watering or a harvest, but we want your word to come alive in the hearts of the hearers, in the hearts of the unsaved, plow up the hard ground of their hearts. And, and I would encourage you to be praying the whole time. Forget what the pastor is saying. And if you don't need to be saved, if you're already saved, don't think about what you're going to have at lunch, wonder how long the altar call is going to go on or any of those things, get control of your spirit and, and lock into to that. One of our elders is always saying that it's at that moment in the you know, service, usually that some demon reaches out and pinches your baby. And I don't know if that's true, but it's interesting that the distractions that take place towards the end of the service or when that's going to happen. Don't be a distraction. Uh, and, you know, I mean, God, of course, He's bigger than your cell phone. He's bigger than your baby crying. He's bigger than all the weird things that, that you and I do. But it's a time when people, uh, do, do you remember some of you who were at a meeting like that or several meetings before you finally gave your heart to the Lord and you're like, I know I should go forward. I know I should raise my hand. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then it's, you, you get yourself distracted by somebody else who's acting silly or you know, maybe two Christians are talking in the back, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to go to a place called Raincross Square in Riverside. It was uh, like the Seland Arena, and uh, Greg Laurie would share the gospel there, their Sunday night service at Calvary Riverside, which is now Harvest Christian Fellowship. They'd bring a, a Christian group in, and they'd always share the gospel. And at the end, he would practically beg Christians not to leave early. As, as he finished his message and went into the altar call, he'd say, please, Christians, remain seated and it always fell on deaf ears hundreds and hundreds of christians would get up and, and leave and so here's the altar call going out and pe- excuse me pardon me excuse me people are walking over each other to get out to get to the parking lot because there were several thousand people there and you wanted to get you know to starbucks before your friends or something like that we can be dull as christians and so when when this is, jesus said this is a real spiritual this is serious stuff people are getting saved Then in verse 13, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. We've all seen what appear to be conversions that end up as catastrophes. These people seem open and receptive to God, but as soon as they're called upon to endure and obey in the midst of difficulties, you see that they have had no real change of heart. Sometimes uh, maybe you'll have a Harvest Crusade or or a Billy Graham Crusade or a Franklin Graham Crusade. And I've heard people complain. Well, it is a complaint. They they will say, well, you know, only 10% of the people who come forward at those crusades are genuinely saved. And I guess you're supposed to think, oh, well, what a waste that was that, look at that, 90% of those people didn't get saved. Uh, Excuse me, what about the 10%? And didn't Jesus say there were going to be a lot of people who seemed like they were excited about the gospel but then fell away? Sometimes I don't know what's wrong with us. Why we even think that way? I guess it's because we are into numbers and success and those kinds of things. And, you know, I might say it three or four more times or I might not say it at all, but this is the meaning of this parable, or not the meaning, but this is the thrust of this parable. Jesus gave this parable not to expose people's hearts necessarily or to talk about that. He gave it to encourage disciples to go on preaching the gospel no matter what. He says, listen, you're going to get all kinds of responses when you preach my gospel. You don't even know what's going on in the heart. Only I do. You go on preaching it and trusting in the power of the Word of God. And so don't get drawn into those conversations where people say, oh, well, we're, you know, that crusade was a dud because you know, most of those people didn't really get saved. Well, were we led to have the crusade? Were we led to share the gospel? That's all that matters. Sometimes people, you know, we have altar calls here, and sometimes we've had a dozen people respond to the gospel. A lot of times, no one publicly responds. And people ask me, they say, does that discourage you? And I say, yes, it does. But it doesn't discourage me for my sake. I don't feel like I'm a failure as a minister of the gospel because if nothing else, I've read the words And maybe what I said didn't hit home, but it's God's Word. I'm discouraged because there are people in every audience that need to get saved. And for whatever reason, they have passed up another opportunity to give their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. But I guess theoretically, you could give an altar call every week for the rest of your life and no one would ever get saved publicly, but you could keep on doing it. Because it's what God wants you to do. And there are stories of missionaries, famous missionaries who went into areas, worked their heart out, never saw any conversions whatsoever, died serving the Lord. And then the next person would come in and whole tribes and whole groups of people would give their lives to Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, hey, just go and share the Word of God. And don't worry about the results. The results are not your business. And then in verse 14, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. It's pretty clear that the first two heart conditions describe people who never were genuinely saved. People with crowded hearts who become unfruitful are a different matter. Unbelievers can certainly be described this way, but there are also many warnings in the New Testament to believers concerning the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. You all know people who still have a strong profession of faith, but have gone after these things in the world and have become pretty unfruitful as Christians. It's also possible for otherwise fruitful believers to find maybe one or more areas of their heart still crowded with the things of the world. Could any of us claim this morning we are completely free from the cares and riches and pleasures of life? If I were to ask you, are you willing to look into the camera and say, I am completely free from the riches and cares and pleasures of this life? I I don't know that we're ready to do that in all honesty. And then in verse 15, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart keep it and bear fruit with patience. As you sow the word, there are those who get saved and who with uncluttered hearts go on bearing fruit. The sower and the seed are the same in each case, only the soil is different. And so we're prone to ask, what makes the soil different? I don't think we can fully answer that since we are talking about the human heart the farmer can't tell where the rocks are buried or where the roots of weeds will spring up and we can't see below the surface of the heart but a word that god spoke to jeremiah encourages us he said in jeremiah chapter 4 verse 3 break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns god saw their hearts as hard and crowded just like the hearts in the parable of the sower but he appealed to their hard and crowded hearts. His appeal was also his enabling them to do what he asked, to break up the hard, crowded soil of their hearts so that they could receive the word into good soil. You never know when the gospel might begin the work of plowing up hard, weed-infested ground. Just because a person responds with a hard heart doesn't mean that he or she will remain that way. The four soils do not describe four types of persons like personality types. They describe the potential condition of hearts at any given moment. Some commentators even call this the parable of the soils rather than the parable of the sower. Think of yourself. Your heart was once hard like the well-trodden pathway. You may have ignored many invitations to come to Jesus Christ, but one day the gospel Plowed up your hard heart, and the seed sown found good soil. I can remember being a student at the University of California at Riverside, and uh, guys with Campus Crusade for Christ were active, sharing their faith and giving out track. And I can remember, it's kind of weird, I remember this one day, I can even see it still in my mind when when these guys came up with their tracks, it was the four spiritual laws, I remember that much, and they even took me through all the four spiritual laws, but to me it sounds, even in my mind today, it sounds like the Charlie Brown cartoons when the adults are talking,
1: wah, wah, wah,
0: (laughs) and I'm standing there in my mind, you know, I know it's a spiritual memory I have, but I'm standing there and these guys are going wah, 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 And as soon as they walked away, I trashed that thing. I mean, rock hard, nuclear hard heart, you know. I mean, it was just not penetrating at all. I didn't have ears to hear. I mean, there was nothing there. Many years later, well, not many years, just a few years later, I'm sitting in a movie theater watching the late great planet Earth. And all of a sudden, my heart is just churning like topsoil, you know, and, and, and it was only a matter of days, and I became a Christian. I was born again. And most of you are like that. Very few people among our group probably would say, oh, yeah, the very first time I heard about Jesus, man, I couldn't wait to get saved. It's what I've been waiting for my whole life. Most of you, it, there, it, there were people, and you might not even remember the people that were sharing with you because you were so hardened. People that came door to door with the gospel, not the weird stuff, but, you know, and all this stuff. And, and, and so your heart was like that and other people's heart. And so there's nobody out there that you can honestly say is so hardened that they cannot receive the gospel. And there are people we give up on. We think, man, that guy's never going to get saved. The Lord has spoken to this parable to us and says, hey, just, just keep giving out the word parable of the sower or the soils, if you prefer, was given to encourage you to go and sow. The parable of the oil lamp is given to encourage you to glow. Go and glow with the light of the world. The fact that Jesus tells this parable immediately indicates it is a further encouragement to go on sowing the seed of God's word into the soil of the human heart. It's actually how to do it or with what attitude. In verse 16, he says, No one, when he has lit a lamp covers it with a vessel, or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. Now, the common household lamp Jesus was describing would be a clay dish with oil filling it and then a wick put into the oil. It should be obvious that since its purpose was to give light, it ought not to be hidden. You are the lamp filled with oil, and the oil is the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says this, for it is the god who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of god and not of us and so paul the apostle there in second corinthians is saying hey you're like an oil lamp a vessel an earthen vessel filled with this oil that gives off the glow of God. And so, God wants you to shine for Him. And I'm using the word glow because it better describes reflected light, light from another source. You glow because you are given God the Holy Spirit to indwell you. A couple of difficult verses now, verses 17 and 18, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Whenever verses seem a little difficult like these do to me, I try reversing their order because often I see that the subsequent verse, if it's read first, will give a commentary on what preceded it. And so if we do that in this case, Jesus warned you, to take heed how you hear. In light of the parable of the sower, this would mean you should first take a soil sample from your own heart and determine if you are a Christian or not. If you are a Christian, what you have and what is given to you even more is God the Holy Spirit. Now, we're gonna see in chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel an encouragement to believers, people who are born again. They already have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Jesus is going to encourage them to go on asking for and seeking after and knocking on heaven's door for more of the empowering of the Holy Spirit in their life. We miss this sometimes because a lot of people are afraid that if you talk about more of the Holy Spirit, you're going to scare people into thinking that they're not really saved or they didn't get truly saved. That's nonsense. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you believe. You are born again by the Holy Spirit, and He indwells you. But we also see the words of Jesus and in the book of Acts that you can ask for more of the power of the Spirit to fall upon you to do your ministry and service. And so if you're a Christian. What you have, the Holy Spirit, will be given to you even more as you minister for the Lord. If you're not a Christian, you might seem to have God in your life, but instead you eventually fall away. It appears on the surface to observers that what you have was taken away from you, but it was never taken away. In the end, at God's judgment, when secrets of the heart are revealed, what was hidden The spiritual reality that you were never saved will come to light. There are just tons of people who think they're saved but are not. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end, but let me give you a a little preview. There are a lot of people who believe that they are saved because of their heritage, because they are born to a certain religion or even ethnic group. I had a combination of that in my life. I've shared with this with you many times before, and it sounds funny, but I don't mean it to be, but because I was born into an Italian Roman Catholic family, I was taught and I believed that I had it made. Not only was I a Catholic, the religion of the apostles, the only true church regardless what anyone else thought on the face of the planet. But I was an Italian. I mean, I don't see the Vatican in Poland. I don't see it in the United States. I see it as a separate state in beloved Italy. And I, I believe that as a young man. I, I, th- I thought there was a God. I believed there was a God. But I knew that I was okay. Whatever happened to me and whatever I did... Boy, was I happy when they dropped the mortal sins. But uh, whatever I did, I was okay. Because, and I can tell you, I don't want to get into it right now, but I know uh, I can bring people here who would say, yeah, in, in my particular ethnic group in this area, I'm a Christian, I've given my heart to the Lord, I can name hundreds of people who think that they're Christians because they were born into a church. They've gone through some kind of a process of confirmation or or, uh, of declaration. What they've done is joined the church. They think they're saved, but they're not. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It seems like what they had was taken away, but they were never truly saved. Now, let's get back to our context and see if we can summarize a little bit everything we've discussed so far. Multitudes were following Jesus. It seemed a tremendous success. But Jesus saw below the surface, beyond the numbers, into each individual heart. He also knew that the Jews would officially, nationally reject Him. For several centuries, His followers would need to take up the work of going into the world and sowing the Word of God. They require encouragement for their work because many would hear the Word of God, but not all would receive it into good prepared soil. Christians should go on sowing, regardless the response, and they could glow as they go, meaning that they would have an inexhaustible source of spiritual power by being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a final encouragement for sowers and glowers. It's not a parable. It's the arrival of Jesus' earthly family in verses 19 through 21. Then his mother Mary and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, "'Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you.' But he answered and said to them, "'My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it.'" And so within that crowd were Jesus' mother Mary and his stepbrothers. These were the other children of Mary and Joseph. And this was at a time before they had backstage passes. Uh, you know, there weren't any passes, and so they couldn't show their mother of Jesus pass. Uh, they didn't win anything from a candy wrapper to get backstage. They just, they were like every, and, and yet some people recognized that this was Jesus' family, and for sure he'd want his family to have a, a, you know, a front row seat, because after all, there were natural privileges for being in the family of Jesus. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. He's not being mean to his family, but he sees this as an opportunity to put a lot of things in perspective concerning the gospel. And what he's saying here is that salvation is never a matter of heritage, but it's always of the heart. There was no national salvation by being a Jew. Many advantages to being a Jew because they had the, the law and the prophets and they were waiting for the Messiah, but there was no national advantage in the sense that you, 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 couldn't, you weren't a Christian just because you were born a Jew. And now he's showing that there is no natural salvation by being a relative. And so no national salvation, no natural salvation. If you wanted to bring this fast forward, we're not saved because we're Americans, We're we're not Christians because we're American. You know, a lot of people in the rest of the world they think that we're Christians because we live in the West. That the East, there's Eastern religions, Buddhism, and all those other isms. And then if you live in the West, Europe and the United States, you're a Christian. And there are Americans that believe they think they're saved because they live in Christian America. There's no national salvation. And there's no natural salvation. My Son and my daughter had to come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They weren't saved because they were born into our family. Lots of advantages to being born into a Christian family. You hear the gospel. The Bible is read and taught. There's a, a living witness, an example of Christ. But they still have to come to a point in their own lives where they recognize that they are sinners who need salvation. And we really need to hammer this home generation after generation. Your children need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And you can know that they've done that. And so, no natural salvation. There is only supernatural salvation when folks receive God's Word into their heart. Take a soil sample from your heart. You can do it with God's help by examining your response to God's Word. Your response will fall into one of the four soils listed. And it better be the fourth, because that's the good soil that you want to be a part of. If you find this good ground, then you can check to see if you're also glowing. Are you telling anybody about Jesus? More importantly, do they see the Lord being reflected in your daily life? The way that a lamp reflects light and gives forth light... Is there a reflection of the nature and character of Jesus Christ through your life to your family and friends and co-workers? Is there anything different about you and I? Or is it kind of hidden under a bushel? That's the idea. If not, then you're to ask and seek and knock, and God will give you His Spirit in a greater measure. He'll fill you with a supply of oil to shine ever more brightly against the deepening darkness of this world. If you're not a Christian, if you examine the soil of your heart and you find that you're in category one or two, today might be the day that God has broken up the hard ground of your heart, has plowed down deep, and you can give your life to Him. Let Him do His work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for this parable, these parables, and Lord, there's a depth to both of them that we will never fully get to in this life. But there's also a simplicity to them, Lord, absolute surface simplicity. And for us here that are Christians, Lord, the simplicity is that we're encouraged to go on broadcasting the Word of God, and as we do, brightly shining for you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be renewed in our Uh, enthusiasm for the power of the gospel to change lives and to penetrate hearts. And to whatever extent, Lord, that we have fallen short, may we just turn from that and be filled with your Spirit. And Lord, I do pray for any who are here that they, Lord, are not in your kingdom, they're not Christians, they've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, that today would be their day of salvation. And that after we close, Lord, they would come forward and talk to one of the men here who would love to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. As we dismiss and sing our final chorus, some of our guys will be up front uh, for many reasons. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning and today is the day that the plow of God's word just ripped your heart up and exposed all that beautiful soil then come forward and and share that with these guys and and ask them to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're a Christian and you want to shine and glow. You want to go and glow. Sounds like a paint, but it's not. It's just glidden glow and glow. But anyway, uh, just come forward. We'll pray for you that you'd be filled afresh and anew with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have a need in your life. There's a sorrow or a loss or some pain that you've been dealing with. Come and let us pray for you. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name, amen.
1: follow You lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. And step by step, you lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. God bless. Have a great day.